Good evening. All right, I think we're live, so thank you for the men getting me wired. Uh, before I start, I, I want to thank Katie Short for uh, taking on the daunting task of uh, reading my handwriting and typing my outline. Do you know how messy you can write when you do it professionally for 36 years? If my staff was here, there'd be at least one amen. Uh, oh, yes, we've got we've got one. Big, I mean, we've got one uh, staff. Uh, thank you very much for that. And just so it doesn't go to waste afterwards, if you want one, you're entitled to an, a, a copy of the outline. So uh, you would not want her to suffer in vain uh, this week after what she went through. Uh, I was going to start off with a disclaimer because the subject, I wanted to let you know that the subject I'm going to speak about is not something that any one of you in the audience have generated. Um, we're going to uh, talk about, but uh, the, 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 the subject was prompted by a book. The name, the name of the book is Unoffendable. Unoffendable. Uh, my little brother sent me that book. And to my knowledge, he pretty much doesn't know you guys. So none of you generated the topic. But the, but the topic is, uh, the title is Hard to Offend. Hard to Offend, the Christian case against being easily offended. Christians are really often too easily uh, offended. And I put myself in that category, and you can just listen in tonight as I as I speak to myself. But we are often easily offended, often over the slightest word or the slightest conduct. And sometimes we get offended, we're paralyzed until we get resolution. Usually it means somebody has to get punished. There's a whole culture that we've built up over making sure you're offended as often as possible. If you look on social media headlines, they, the professional people that make money in that business have to get you in the door. They have to get your eyes on an article or whatever it is they're selling, and they call it clickbait. It is a short, pithy statement designed to get you from zero to 360 degrees in anger as quickly as possible so that you will read what they have. And as many, the more people click on their stuff, the more they get paid. So they are very good at, at, at getting your attention with, with headlines that will get you angry uh, really quickly, like the microwave version. You know, They just want to be able to just turn on your anger as quickly as possible. Uh, for some, being easily offended is a lifestyle. There are many reasons that Scripture teaches us uh, that why we should really not be easily offended. But I want to start out with the other end of the scale, which is, why on earth are we so easily offended? Uh, the book is, uh, is by Brent Hansen. It's unoffendable. And he has some ideas on why we're so easily offended. Uh, of course. You warned me. I, I probably accidentally hit the uh, off button. Um, one thing he says is we often we don't often admit this, but we like being angry. We don't like what caused the anger to be sure. We just think that we've got something on someone that so and so did something wrong and something horrible, sometimes horribly wrong. And angers offers us a sense of moral superiority. 
He also says, in the moment, everyone's anger always seems righteous, right? Anger is a feeling after all, and it sweeps over us and tells us we're being denied uh, something that we should have. It provides its own justification, but an emo- it's an emotion, just an emotion. It's not critical thinking. Anger doesn't pause. We have to stop and we have to question it. He also says, in my experience, people, all people thrive on being offended. It makes us feel more righteous to get aggravated at the behavior of other people. He also says, we struggle with God, trusting God to mete out justice. We're afraid that he won't mete out justice, that some people just won't get what they deserve. So perhaps our entitlement to anger is a little way of making sure that some measure of justice is served. As he says, my anger isn't a sign of trust. It's a very opposite. I'm worried someone's going to get away with something like God's not noticing. It's up. It's all up to me. This kind of anger is perfectly human. Uh, And, of course, it's perfectly natural and just perfectly destructive as any other kind of anger. We will come back to this passage, but this verse ties in where the Lord says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not forget. Fret, it only causes harm. Later in the chapter, he goes into how he judges or whatever. If you were to translate this into modern vernacular, it would be very short sentence. Chill out. God's got this. It's really how quickly would God say, chill out. I got this. Why are you worrying about the people that are doing bad things? This is another flavor of what we talked about before is that he says we don't need to act like uh, kids who've been abandoned are forced to take matters into their own hands. That is when somebody does something bad and then nothing, ob- the lightning bolt doesn't immediately come down and, and, and just absorb them. Uh, we have to defend ourselves in every turn. Our father's coming home and he tells us over and over again, he's going to take care of things. That's sort of another version of Psalm uh, 37. We hold on to worry because we don't trust God. We hold on to anger because we don't trust God. We feel threatened because we're insecure and we're insecure because, surprise, we don't trust God. This one, I think, really hits home. So since anger has value, giving it up requires a sacrifice. And as we've explored, it's the one that's simply not optional for a follower of Christ. The cross simultaneously stands as a constant reminder of his his willingness to pay the bill and as an indictment to us when we are unwilling to do the same for other people. When somebody hurts you, it's like they owe me something. And what does forgiveness mean? What does forgiveness mean in the context of paying a debt? It means they don't have to pay you back anymore. And he says, and Christ says, I got this. I got that bill. I got your bill. You sinned. I got that. But then when somebody has sins against us, you don't want to give up that bill. This talks about the difference between forgiveness and anger. It says, but forgiveness doesn't have the short term savory flavor of anger because we think our anger is righteous and there's a certain deliciousness to it. We're back to where we were. I'd like to talk about why Christians should not be easily offended. 
By, by offense, I mean anger. If you're offended, it means you're angry at someone. The first reason is, is that anger is something that God wants us to get rid of, not hold on to. Look at Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, verse 31. I'm just going to look at verse 31 to start with. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. Colossians 3.18 says, put away all anger. So we'll talk about one exception later on, but it is a pretty small exception. He makes it pretty clear. He wants you to just get rid of it. Colossians is almost a picture of putting on clothes and taking off things. And he says, take them, take the anger off of you. Now, look at James chapter one. Second reason why. We should not be easily offended uh, is expressed in James chapter one, verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. As much as we want to convince God otherwise, when we get angry, good things do not happen and God's good things do not happen. We mess it up all the time. We think if we just crank up the heat and get angry and blow off the steam that something good is going to happen. And God says, your anger does not produce my righteousness. We'll come back to the to the uh, the slow to boil part on that. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter seven, Ecclesiastes chapter seven. Verse nine, he says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. One reason we want to get rid of anger is because anger is where fools live. Anger is where fools live. He says, if you're one who's quick to anger, anger lodges in your bosom of your of a fool. He says in the essentially in the lap of a fool. If anger has landed on you and it's not leaving, you're just like sitting with uh, you're just like sitting with anger in your lap. Look at Proverbs fourteen twenty nine. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine says. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly or exalts foolishness. Anger is where the fool lives. Anger is also where trouble lives. If you look at Proverbs 29, verse 20. It says, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for him. There is more hope for a fool than for him. Verse 22 says, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Anger is where trouble lives. I was reminded of this as I was preparing. 
uh, for this evening, and I was remembering the life of my brother, Norm. And uh, on one occasion, my brother was in trouble with the law a number of times, but on one occasion, his girlfriend gets into an argument with the police, and they just say, just be quiet, go on your way. And they say, we're going to arrest you if you don't be quiet. And she just goes on and on and on. I listen to the tape. It just rings in my head all the time. And uh, so eventually they say, all right, we're going to arrest you. So they put their hands on her to arrest her, and uh, she yells out. And my brother's like around behind the garage, and he sees them taking a hold of her, and he proceeds to knock them flat on the ground. That cost them five years in prison. Five years in prison. That little 30-second outburst of anger on his part cost him five years in prison. I talked to an inmate the other day at the jail who fully admitted that he had a terrible time controlling his anger. And he had already been to prison for a number of years because of it. And he was in a third time and expected to go to prison for it again this time. Anger is where trouble lives. Uh, and it can cost you unbelievably dearly. Uh, unbelievably dearly. Another reason why God expects us to not be easy to offend is He expects us to be slow to anger, not quick to be offended. Look at Psalm 86.15. Psalm 86.15. This is just one of many verses that describe God this way. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There are lots of places in the Old Testament where you can find where it says God's anger boiled against, usually against someone's uh, sinfulness, egregious sin, and he punishes Israel, and he's angry with someone, but God is always described as slow to anger. Slow to anger. It says the same, uh, same thing in... Uh, Psalm 103, in a different, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Our God is slow to anger. We, we looked at James 1. He says, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. God expects Christians to be part of the slow to boil club. We are not supposed to be the microwave anger Christians. He expects us to be slow to get to that point. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Verse. Let's start at 18 to give context. But if we are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions. And then you get down to verse 22, and the comparison is the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are inconsistent with anger. A Spirit-filled Christian is supposed to shun anger. Now, is there a category for righteous indignation? Uh, I think there is. Well, I'll look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin. 
People who struggle with anger, this is their life verse. Be angry. See, God says I'm supposed to be angry. I think MacArthur describes it well. He says, Paul may be sanctioning righteous indignation, anger at evil. This type of anger hates injustice, ungodliness, and every other sin. When such anger is unselfish and based on love for God and others, it's permissible, not just permissible, but commanded. Even righteous anger, but says even righteous anger can turn to bitterness, so it shouldn't be set aside by the end of the day. If anger is prolonged, it becomes hostile and violates the instruction of Romans 12, 17 to 21. And we're going to get there. The rest of the verse says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity uh, for the flesh. Think about this. What other emotion is there that when God says uh, it is okay, but immediately says, do not sin. And whatever you do, don't hold on to it past the end of the day. Don't hold on to it past the end of the day. If you are telling me today about yesterday's anger still seething in you, you have already held on to it too long. He says, give it up at the end of the day. If you are married and you've been married a long time, you know how true this verse is. You know that a successful marriage in large part depends on making sure you do not store up anger day after day after day, that you resolve things before the day is out. Sometimes you don't get much sleep, but you get it resolved so it doesn't keep stacking on, on one on top of the other. I, I always tell the guys at jail, if you have anger against someone and you don't get it resolved and an offense, it's like putting a monkey in your back. And every time it's a monkey and a monkey and ten monkeys equal, equals a gorilla. And then pretty soon you're walking around like like this. Like you just can barely stand up because you are so angry and so bitter. And it's weighing on your heart so much. Unforgiveness destroys your soul. I'm getting to the point where I can just spot people the minute they walk into my door for an interview. If they're storing up anger and unforgiveness in their heart and bitterness. Uh, it is a, a huge, nasty toil that weighs on their soul. The ledge that God lets you stand on for appropriate, righteous anger is very narrow and it is very brief. He doesn't trust you with it past the end of the day. What does that tell you? We should be hard to offend because we need to adjust expectations to biblical reality. Think about this. Jesus describes unbelievers this way, and he tells his disciples what unbelievers are going to do to them. He says they're going to hate you because they hated me. They're going to persecute you. They're going to jail you, and they're going to say all manner of evil against you falsely. So why are you shocked when unbelievers do bad things to you? Why are you shocked when they do bad things to you? Jesus warned you thousands of years ago that they would do bad things to you. Romans tells us everyone's a sinner. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1, the first five verses or so, tells you how bad you were before you became a Christian. Stop being shocked that an unbeliever did something bad to you. You also shouldn't be shocked when a believer does something bad. If you want, even mature believers... Look at you look at we won't turn there, but you can look at read Romans chapter seven. This is Paul's admission on how he struggles with sin. He says the stuff I want to do, I don't. The stuff I don't want to do, I do. Does this sound familiar? 
We are believers and we sin and we hurt people when we sin. So stop expecting unbelievers to act like believers and stop expecting believers to be perfect. It's not going to happen. Uh, uh, Brand Hansen talks about this as part of it's just adjusting our expectations. If Jesus was never like shocked that people sinned in his presence. Uh, Like he knew human nature. It didn't surprise him. Uh, Hanson says, perhaps a big part of being less offendable is seeing the human heart for what it is. Untrustworthy, unfaithful, prone to selfishness. Got it. Now we don't have to be shocked. He says, I had to adjust my expectations and stop being offended. Look, you have a free will. You can be perpetually shocked and offended. But to be honest, isn't it kind of exhausting? This is not cynicism. This is living with realistic expectations. The same understanding of our nature that Jesus has. Then he gets us back to where we should be, which is, yes, the world is broken, but don't be offended by it. And said, thank God that he he's intervened in it. He's going to restore it to everything it was meant to be. His kingdom is breaking through bit by bit. Recognize it. Wonder at it. See the human heart for what it is. Adjust expectations and be grateful, not angry. Recognizing our brokenness and gaze at the beauty of God's manifested love and grace breaking into the world. Another reason we should not be easily offended is because uh, anger tries to take over God's job as judge and avenger of evil. Look at Romans chapter 12. Verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, God sees everything. He knows everything, every wrong. And we think God missed something and needs our anger to give the offenders the full measure of the punishment they really deserve. He sees everything. He says, fret not because of evildoers. I got this. I'm the one that takes care of judging and avenging evil. That's not your job. Plus, we're really biased judges. We're really biased judges. We're not going to turn there, but you can write it down. You can pull it off the outline. Proverbs 18.17 says, The one who comes and speaks first sounds right. The one who comes to speak first sounds right. Until another comes and examines him. The biblical basis for cross-examination. The first one to speak, to tell the story, sounds, Oh yeah, they must be right. Well, guess who is the first one you always tell your story to? Yourself. Yourself. And you're the first one that thinks, yeah, that guy cut me off because uh, he was just being mean. He didn't like me. And little did you know, he was taking his girl that just got injured to the because he broke her arm and her leg to the to the hospital. But of course, we like our story first because we tell it to ourselves first. There's a reason uh, Hansen says it this way. Quit trying to be the parent of the whole world. Quit trying to be the parent of the whole world. 
There is a reason that God did not put us in charge of the lightning bolts. We're often wrong. And we usually don't know all the facts. How do you really know what people are thinking when they do things? Unless you can get right inside of their head. The only one that can do that is God. So that's why he doesn't put us in charge of the lightning bolts. Aren't you glad? We probably wouldn't have any spouses left, including me. I'd be one of the first to go. God doesn't do that because he says, leave this up to me. That anger you want to store because you're going to unleash a tirade on somebody because they kicked you off. He said, that's my job. We also forget how God expects us to treat our enemies. We're not going to turn and look at every verse on here, but he, he talks about how we should love and pray for our enemies. I hate when this happens, but every time I speak in this church, God does something to plop something in my life right down about two weeks before I speak. And somebody irritated me about two weeks ago, and I'm simmering over it a little bit like, oh, I get it. Here we go again. Here we go again. You're going to test me to see if I'm going to apply what I teach to myself. And somebody, and, and eventually I, I've learned something over the years, which is, if somebody stays in your head more than a few moments for being irritated, you need to start praying for them. I, and it just so happened the person that irritated me, who's not in our church, by the way, don't start guessing, <laughs> that they're going through some hard times where they need tremendous wisdom to try to guide their family through some really rough waters. And so every time Satan would bring their, that person's name up to my mind, I would pray for that person. Eventually, Satan will leave you alone because then he figures out that every time he puts that person's name on your mind, you start praying for them. Plus, it begins to change your heart. It's very hard to be angry with someone when you're praying for their prosperity. God tells us in Luke that we are uh, to be the turn the other cheek people. We don't like hearing that verse, do we? They smack you with the word up the side of the head, you know, and, you know, you, what do you want to do? You want to give them the, left, the right hook right back or left hook or whatever. So, you know, that's what we want to do. He says that's not, that's not who believers are. We're the people who love and pray for their enemies. We are the people of the tradition of the, uh, of the folks who are being burned at the stake who are saying good things about the people who are burning them, praying for their good. As Jesus is nailed to the cross and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is our tradition. That is why the world looked at martyrs being burned alive at the stake and praising God and realized these people are something different. They are really special. They are able to not be angry with people, but to pray for even their enemies who are persecuting them. I was on a plane one time with a guy. He was from Uganda. It was very clear after a while that he was not a Christian. But somehow I, I, I was on my way to a Christian conference, so we got to talking. And, and he decided he, he, he went into the church to find uh, someone good to marry. But, but he, he knew where the, the good ladies were. And he described to me the situation in Uganda during Idi Amin's presidency where he, he tortured Christians. And he said he remembers watching the circle around them and watching them sing for joy inside of the circle as they were being beaten. Those are the people, we are the people that stand out as Christians when we do not respond back with anger 
uh, when people treat us badly. We also need to remember how God expects us to treat believers. In Colossians 3, 13 and 14, he says we are to love our fellow brothers, to forgive them and forbear them. Just this evening, I was thinking to myself, why would God have to command them to forgive each other and forbear one another if they never did anything to hurt or annoy the other person in church? They, they hurt each other back then and they annoyed each other back then, too. And he says, you're supposed to be the ones that love and forgive and forbear. It's a really fancy word that just means to put up with. God knows what it means to, to have a person who annoys you. And he says, you are to love one another. I want you to think about this. John 13, 35, pastor referred to this this morning. That it says, how, how, Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one towards another. How can the world see that we love each other if we are in a perpetual state of being offended by one another in our church? How can the world see us as loving one another? Loving people means, yes, loving people who have hurt you and loving people who annoy you. They have a different personality. And yet, you know what? I'm going to love this person because Jesus says that's part of what Christians do and what he commands them to do. Paul had it back in his churches in Philippi. He tells them, I want you to be humble and consider the other people around you in the church to be more important than yourself. If you have that attitude of humility, and what's the example of humility that he gives them in Philippians 2? Jesus humbling himself from deity down to the death on a cross. And we think it's... it's a a come down for us, maybe to have to work next to somebody in church that annoys us. Our Savior sets a really higher bar than that. He wants us to love our believers, to humble ourselves, to consider them more important than ourselves. And when we, when we remember that, it's very hard to be bitter with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Perhaps the number one thing I want you to remember is this next one. We should be hard to offend because by being angry and bitter, we forget how much we have been forgiven. Uh, look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 8, he says, The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always child, nor does he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He says, God does not give you what you deserve. Be really careful because because God doesn't give you what you deserve. We shouldn't be giving other people what they deserve either. That's what grace is. That's what God's grace is to us. Look how much he forgives us in terms of what we've done. As as Hanson says, when you're living in the reality of forgiveness, you've been extended. You just don't get angry with others easily. I suspect our sense of entitlement to anger is directly proportional to our perception of our own relative innocence. 
So when that illusion is blown up irrevocably, publicly, in our faces, it's very difficult to be angry with someone else. And, of course, the, the core passage of the New Testament on this, I think, is Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He says that's your standard of, of forgiveness. If Christ forgave you, you should be forgiving the other person. We don't have time to deal with this in great detail. Um, but the number one cure for being easily offended is constantly reminding ourselves that God forgave me. I can and I must forgive others. The severity of the wrong fades in the face of the enormity of God's forgiveness. When Jesus, they came to the disciples, came to Jesus, they said, how many times are you supposed to forgive people? Seven times? They thought that was really high standard. And he says, no, 70 times seven. In other words, there really is no limit on this thing. And then he tells them the story of the forgiving servant where this one servant comes dragged before the king and he owes like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And the king says, you know, we're going to torture you and do all those bad things to you. And he begs and pleads. And the king says, OK, we'll forgive all of your all of your debt. And then the guy immediately goes out and somebody owes him a 100 bucks or something or less. And he, he insisted he pay it back. And when the guy won't, he, he like throws him in the clink and, you know, he's going to torture him or whatever. And uh, the king finds out about it and drags the first servant back and says, what are you doing? You know, he turns him over to the torturers. Did you forget what you have been forgiven? Have you forgotten what you have been forgiven? And we do the unforgiving servant thing all the time. When you think this person has done something so wrong, I shouldn't have to forgive them. So wrong, I shouldn't have to forgive them. And Jesus says, have you forgotten what I've forgiven you? Have you forgotten? I like to draw the analogy between sitting at the Thanksgiving table and just think about the bowl of stuff that you want the most. For me, it's it's the dressing, the dressing. Just give me the dressing and just pretend that they're passing it around the table and it gets to the person next to you and they take a big heap of dressing and they put the keep the bowl on the left hand side and they don't pass it down to you. And what do you think of yourself? Come on, pass the pass the dressing. And God has passed this big bowl of forgiveness to us. And we take a big slathering out of it and put it on our plate and we leave it over there. And the next guy does something we don't want to forgive and we won't pass the bowl of forgiveness onto him. We're doing the same thing. We're being the unforgiving servant. Don't forget to pass the grace. Don't forget to pass the grace. This room is big enough where I would not be the least bit shocked if someone has something that somebody in our church has done or something on the outside. I think I just can't forgive that. Yes, you can. And you have been commanded to do so. And you can do so. Hanson illustrates it this way. Whenever there's an injury to a relationship, a hurt, a broken heart, or even a broken thing you are willing to forgive, you're saying, I got this. I'm going to pick the bill up for this. This, of course, is precisely what God has done for us. Says the cross simultaneously stands as a constant reminder of his willingness to pay the bill and an indictment of us when we are unwilling to do the same for others. 
number one thing, if you forget everything else, is just to ask yourself, are you willing to pass the grace when someone hurts you, when someone offends you? Are you willing to pass that bowl of grace that your Savior has passed to you? Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. I keep waiting for that. To, I, I, I like, anybody like walking through cemeteries and just reading the tombstones and just seeing strange things that people have on their tombstones or interesting things? And I just keep waiting for that phrase to show up on a tombstone. He was slow to anger. It was his glory to overlook an offense. He was slow to anger. She was slow to anger. It was her glory to overlook an offense. Aren't you glad that God overlooks our offenses because of Christ's work on the cross for us? In, in summary, there are plenty of reasons for Christians not to be easily offended. Anger is something God wants us to get rid of, not hold on to. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger is where fools live. Anger is where trouble lives. God expects us to be slow to anger, not quick to offend. Spirit-filled Christians are slow to anger. The ledge for righteous indignation is narrow and brief. We need to adjust our expectations to biblical reality that unbelievers sin and treat us badly. Believers sin and cause us harm. We should stop expecting unbelievers to act like believers and believers to act perfectly. And when we're angry, we try to take God's job as judge and offender of evil, and that is not our job. And most importantly, I think, by being angry and bitter against others, we forget how much God has forgiven us. Past grace. Let us commit ourselves to be slow to anger and quick to overlook others' offenses. Yes, you can choose to be unoffendable. Will that be your choice? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this evening. Uh, Lord, in a, in a group this big, there are plenty of hurts to go around where people have been hurt and maybe have been holding on to something that has hurt them from years and years and years past. Help this to be the point where they pass the grace that you have given them onto the person that hurt them. We pray, dear God, that when the world looks at our church people, that they would see a people that really does reflect the love of Christ for each other. That they would look at us and say, those people don't even respond in anger or offense when someone hurts them. They leave that for God to take care of and they respond with good to overcome evil, not to try to overcome evil with good. I pray, dear God, that you would give us the courage to do those things. And most of all, Give us that constant voice of reminder in our minds every time we're tempted to hold on to anger and to be the avenger to remind us we have been forgiven and we should forgive others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.